We are in Romans 8, that's page 944, if uh, you would like to use the Bible in front of you in the pew rack. And we are nearing the end of the series of this great chapter, looking at verses 31 and 32. Uh, 31 begins the conclusion of Romans 8, so we're taking that conclusion in three, three sections. Verses 31 and 32, Uh, we'll begin our reading at the start of the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed, It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? As far as the reading of God's word, I'd ask you to keep your Bibles open there. We're going to take another look through Romans 8 in just a minute. On April 4th, uh, Finland became the newest member uh, country to join the military alliance uh, known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. It was after the invasion of Russia into Ukraine that uh, Finland, who shares an 830-mile border with Russia, sought protection within uh, NATO. And even though Russia made threats against them and, and much of Europe if they were to join... Uh, Finland determined that if Russia was to be their enemy, it would be better to have this band of countries as their allies and their friends. And maybe you've experienced uh, the principle that is at play in that decision in your own life, that principle being this, that the strength of our enemies um, grows or shrinks in proportion to the strength of our friends, right? The strength of our enemies and how that appears to us it grows or shrinks in proportion to the strength of our friends. Uh, that, that's a biblical principle also. It makes me think of the story of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, Elisha and his servant. Maybe you recall Elisha has a bounty uh, out on him uh, from the king of Syria. Uh, he's to be captured and, and brought back to the king uh, for questioning. And he sends, the king sends an uh, an army to, to find this one prophet, and Elisha's servant steps out of the tent one day, and he sees this, uh, these chariots and these horses coming, coming after him, and he's, he's terrified. But then the Lord graciously opens his eyes, and he looks around, and in the mountains he, surrounding them, he sees these fiery, angelic forces. And maybe you, you remember the, the line that Elisha says to his servant. He says, Fear not, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And what, what Paul does as he comes to the conclusion of this chapter in Romans is he takes that same truth, that same reality, and he brings it to bear on the Christian in eternally soul-securing ways when he tells us that the one who is for us, the one who is with us, is more, is mightier than any who would ever be against us. Because the one who is for us is, in fact, God himself. Well, verse 31, if you look there, begins the first of a series of questions uh, in this conclusion. The first question is, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what things is Paul talking about as he winds down the chapter? What things? Paul, well... The things of Romans 8, right? The entire chapter. So let's trace some of the highlights. Go back to verse 1. What has Paul asserted so far? Verse 1, that God will stay the execution for those who are found in Christ Jesus. The execution that they deserve because of their sin. The wages of sin is death. 
But if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Verse 2. God has given us a Holy Spirit-enabled ability to keep his laws and to live according to his ways. Look at verse 3. God has placed the punishment for sin on his son. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemns sin in the flesh. We skip down. Look at verses 9 through 11. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. And he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Here we're learning that the same spirit that, that, that affected the resurrection of our Lord now lives in our hearts and brings our hearts to resurrection life. And unites us permanently to Christ. Verses 14 through 17, still talking about the work of the Spirit. Now says, Paul says that the Spirit makes us children of God. Adopts us as God's children so that we can actually call him Father. And he gives us free and bold access to the Father at all times. And not only that, we will receive the very same eternal inheritance that the Son alone deserves and he himself will receive. We get that too. Look at verse 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. God has secured our future glory in the new heavens and the new earth. And that glory is, is so glorious that the sufferings of this life aren't even worth comparing to it. Verses 26 and 27, if we skip there. Back to the theme of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself helps us in our weakness here. We're told that, that God's Spirit perfects our imperfect prayers such that we can have an assurance and a confidence that God hears our imperfect prayers because they are actually presented perfectly in conformity to the will of God. Verse 28. God ordains all things to serve our eternal good. And then verses 29 and 30, we looked at last week. God, having set his love on us in eternity, predestined us, predestines us to conformity to Christ, uh, calls us to faith in that amazing promise, justifies us with the righteousness of Christ, and one day will make us perfect in glory. And now Paul says, after having said all of that, he asks this question in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? The question is something like this. So what? What's the takeaway here? What's the point of all of this? What's the response? Paul is inviting the believing community to reflect and respond to the amazing promises of the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do when he asks that question. We're supposed to reflect and respond to the gospel. And so what are we going to say? That's what Paul asks. What shall we say to these things? What are we to say, Paul? Well, notice, Paul actually doesn't say anything. What shall we say to these things? Paul doesn't say anything. He keeps asking more questions. In fact, he asks five more questions to this initial one. So the initial one is, what shall we say to these things? Now look with me at the next five questions. First question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Second question, how will God not give us all things? Third question, we didn't read this one yet. Verse 33, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Fourth question, the fourth question is, who can condemn us? Verse 34, 
And then the fifth and final question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, you'll see there is another question after that, but it's really just an um, extension of that fifth question. So for simplicity's sake, we say there are five questions here. What shall we say to these things? Paul doesn't tell us at all. He just says, I got more questions for you. I got more questions. God's force, who can be against us? How will he not give us all things? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, why frame the takeaways of chapter 8 in questions rather than by making statements? Well, I think Paul is offering something of a challenge here. He, he's so confident in his God that he's inviting any person, not just any person, but any argument, really, any reasoning. He's inviting any and all to step forward as an opponent to the guaranteed plans and the promises of salvation in the gospel. And he's saying, who can challenge these promises? John Stott puts it like this. The apostle's answer to his own question, what then shall we say to these things, is to ask five more questions to which there is no answer. And he hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, and hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and who he will glorify. So what shall we say to these things? Well, let's look at the two questions that Paul asks immediately following this initial question. What's the point? What's the takeaway? The first takeaway, the first unanswerable question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the important thing right away is to not misinterpret what Paul is saying. He is not saying there is nobody against us. There is, he's not saying there's nothing against us. Um, The Christian has enemies, and you don't even have to do anything to, to earn them. They're just kind of part of the deal. Part of the deal of being a Christian is to have enemies. And we have, uh, historic Christianity has, has said, we have essentially three enemies. First is the world. Right? Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it first hates, has hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore that's why the world hates you. So it's a, it's a sort of guilt by association. The world hates us because we're wearing the wrong jersey, because we're rooting for the wrong team. Uh, we stand for the wrong values, and we promote the wrong causes. And so when you find people hating you, people rejecting you, people despising you, people not wanting to be around you, not really being a fan of the things that you are a fan of, it would not be inappropriate to do some self-reflection and to ask, do people hate me because I'm a jerk? Because there is no um, commendation in that, dear Christian, and I think we need to remember that. It may be especially in in our particular reformed flavor of Christianity, right? We can hold our values so proudly read arrogantly that we think if people don't like us that's their problem this is a badge of honor but there is no honor in people hating you because you are a jerk that's not the idea of the world hating the followers of christ but if you do that analysis and you come to the conclusion that people don't hate you for how you act but rather because of what you believe and whom you stand for whom you worship 
then there is no shame. And in fact, there's the opposite of shame. There is honor in that. And this is what we are to expect because John 3.20, Jesus says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Hates the light. And so if you can say, well, I'm not a jerk. I'm just trying to be a follower of Jesus. Well, that means you are a follower of the light. You are light in Christ. And darkness will hate you. In an 1845 essay, the French author, Victor Hugo, uh, made this comment. He says to his readership, he, says, he asks him, you have enemies? You have enemies? Why? That's just the cloud which thunders around everything that shines. You're to expect that. It's the cloud that thunders around everything that shines. So we have the world against us, but there's not just an enemy without. There's an enemy within our own sinful flesh. The world and the flesh are against us. Paul has said as much already. If you flip back to chapter 7, he's written this in his epistle, verse 22 and 23. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's this enemy that we can't escape. There's an enemy that's within us. So monasticism or something like that might spare you, uh, might get you away from, your, um, from you know, the sinful sway of the world and culture, but there's nothing you can do to get you away from the sinful sway of your own heart. And our hearts are desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. And so the Christian life involves us in an ongoing, lifelong conflict Sinclair Ferguson says, daily, hourly, we need to keep walking in the spirit, refusing to return to the flesh. We are in a war zone, and therefore we cannot live any way we please. That's Sinclair Ferguson in his great book on sanctification, Devoted to God. I would recommend that to you, Devoted to God. So we face the world and our own flesh, and of course there's that greatest of enemies, the devil, the one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. To, to consume us. And, and he marshals all of his might and all the forces of evil against us. He wants our destruction. So just keep that in mind that when you face the uh, pull of the world or the downward drag of sin or, or the, the heat of Satan's temptation, don't think, well, God's failed me on this promise from Romans 8.31 because the promise is not... If God's for you, you will never have any enemies. You will never have anybody against you. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that when God is on our side, no one against us can ever win. That's what he's saying. We'll never lose. Why? Because God is for us. What threat could there possibly be when the maker and sustainer of the universe has taken up our own cause as his own cause? And, and now he's, he's working all things for our good. Indeed, no one and nothing could ever overwhelm or overcome the Christian because of this fact and this fact alone. God is for us. Let that statement sink in for just a moment. God is for you. He's for you. Matthew Henry said that in that statement, Paul sums up all of our privileges. Every blessing of being a Christian is summed up in this. God is for me. That's what the psalmist says, Psalm 56. There's a great line hidden in that psalm. But this I know. It's a statement of faith. This I know. God is for me. 
Let that sink in. God is for you. He's on your side. He's, he's rooting for you. He's inclined towards you. He's, he's, if we could put it this way, he's biased towards you. He, he's not suspicious of you. And, and if that doesn't blow your mind and bow your knees and melt your heart, then you do not understand one of at least two things, if not both. You don't understand the greatness of God and how, you don't understand how great God is, or you don't understand how bad you are. One of those two things, if not both. Right? Because you and I are the last people who should be able to make such a stupendous claim. And yet Paul's saying that's exactly what we can say when we're Christians. The God of the universe is for us. He's on our side. He's ours. Paul's saying this is a natural outworking of the gospel. If God has not condemned us, if he's freed us from sin, if he's given us the spirit of adoption, the only logical conclusion is to be able to say, he's for me. He's for me. Let Charles Spurgeon guide us through the wonder of this truth. Listen to this from one of his sermons. It is impossible for any human speech to bring out the depth of the meaning of how God is for us. He was for us before the worlds were made. He was for us or else he would never have given us his son. He was for us even when he smote the only begotten and laid the full weight of his wrath upon him. He was for us though he was against him. He was for us when we were ruined in the fall. He loved us notwithstanding all. He was for us when we were against him and with a high hand were bidding him defiance. He was for us or else he never would have brought us humbly to seek his face He has been for us in many struggles. We have had to fight through multitudes of difficulties. We have had temptations from without and within. How could we have held on until now if he had not been for us? He is for us, let me say, with all the infinity of his heart, with all the omnipotence of his love, for us with all of his boundless wisdom, arrayed in all the attributes which make him God, he is for us, eternally immutably for us, for us even when the yonder blue skies will be rolled up like a worn-out garment. He is for us throughout eternity. Here, child of God, is matter enough for thought, even though thou hadst ages to meditate upon it. God is for thee, and if God be for thee, who can be against thee? And yet we doubt it, don't we? We doubt it. We have trouble, trouble stepping out in faith and, and testing the sturdiness of that promise. Can it really hold us? Sometimes it's pr- precisely because we do, in fact, know how bad we are. And that's why we doubt the promise. But if we're still doubting, that means then we don't understand how great God is. You know, because we think maybe something like this. I believe it, that when God is favorable towards someone... That, that there's nothing that could ever defeat them. Uh, nothing could ever be against them. But how do I know that God's favorable towards me? How do I know he's for me, though? And Paul's answer is for us to look to the cross. Look at verse 32. The second question is really an answer to the first. How can you know that God is for you? He says, he who did not spare his own son... But gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's Paul doing? He's making an argument, isn't he, from the greater to the lesser. 
the fact that God's for you, and indeed will always be and forever will be for you, and even has made it so that all things are for you and all things are yours, the, 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 the proof of that is the fact that he gave you his son. Charles Hodge says, the ground of confidence and security, which includes all others, is the love of God. So he's saying, if you want to be confident about something, you need to have the love of God. Now, how can you know God loves you? Hodge says, the exhibition of divine love, which surpasses and secures all others, is the gift of his own son. Think of it for for a minute. There is nothing we need more than this, to be reconciled to God, to have our sins forgiven, uh, to, be, to be rescued from sin, death, and hell. Nothing else matters if that need is not met, and yet the cross of Calvary tells us that need has been met. And when you look in faith to what God has accomplished on the cross, all the trials and the anxieties and the worries that loom large in your life suddenly become small. Right? The Christian is to examine his or her life with all of the seeming mess that it is. And my life's a mess. I imagine yours has been, if it is not right now, and if it is not right now and has not been, it will be soon. So we are to examine our lives and the mess that, that, that makes up our life. And you can insert that mess here. You know, maybe it's financial stress, a tension with your spouse, um, political unrest in the country, fires at work that need to be put out. I mean, the list goes on and on. Things that make our lives so stressful and anxious and worrisome. But the Christian examines that and then says to himself or to herself, God gave me Jesus. Then, of course, he'll give me whatever I need to get through that trial, to get through this mess. I know it because he gave me Jesus. And so tomorrow... When you're prone to worry, you need to cultivate this Romans 8.32 lifestyle or, or mindset. You need to argue from the greater to the lesser. You need to tell yourself, if I have Jesus, then I actually lack nothing. Jesus is the guarantee to me that God is for me and will not leave me in any distress, even this distress that I am worrying about right now. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. And remember that the gift of Christ includes all other gifts. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, we heard something similar in verse 28, right? Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So this is the second time we've heard this line, all things. And back in verse 28, you'll remember that we, we had to... To correct a misinterpretation, just because God works all things for our good doesn't mean that that he works all things the way we want. Likewise, when it says he gives us all things, it means he will give us all things that we need, not necessarily all things that we want. Again, to quote John Newton, remember, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. In other words, we could read this line uh, to, to, to say something like, since he gave us Jesus, how will he not also give us all things that we might ever need. That's the idea. And the, the, the proof of that amazing promise, you have to go back to the cross. 
We have to return to that every day, every hour. The cross. The cross is the sure sign of God's love for me. That God did not spare his own son. Now you hear that, what do you think of? What Old Testament story comes to mind? I think it's really hard to read Romans 8, 32 and not think of Abraham. Right? You remember the story where God says to Abraham, to test how much you love me, to test your love, your devotion to me, I'm going to require you to make the greatest sacrifice of all. You have to give up your only son. And what does Abraham do? He submits. He, he takes him up Mount Moriah, right? And, and it's at that, that last possible second. The knife's in his hand. It's raised, ready to strike, that God speaks through the angel to Abraham. Wait, stop, don't. And what does God say to Abraham? Genesis twenty-two twelve. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham proved his love for God by not withholding his son, his only son, from him. And now, amazingly, Paul is saying that God proves his love for us by not withholding his son, his only son. He did not spare his only son. And I think we could say he did not spare himself either. Right? The father did not spare himself the pain of losing his only son, if we could put it in human terms. And that's how the biblical authors put it, at least. Uh, the father delivered up his son. He didn't keep him for himself. The natural response of any father with his son. Uh, there, there is a, he's still alive, actually. There's a, a, a famous philosopher and theologian, uh, Nicholas Walterstorff, who back in 1987 wrote, uh, published a book called Lament for a Son, which was a series of reflections upon an incident that had happened uh, two years prior when his son Eric uh, tragically died in a climbing accident at the age of 25. And so um, Walter Storff wrote this short little book. It's very good. It's very hard to read, but it's good. Um, reflecting on, on how to cope with that loss as a Christian and the loss of his son. And he opens the book with a really interesting line where he says, you know, he's, he's a famous professor and philosopher, so he gets asked to speak at a lot of places. And he said, when people ask me, uh, how should we introduce you? Uh, or, or tell me about yourself. Who, who are you? That his inclination is uh, to answer. And he says, maybe not right away, but eventually I'll say this. I am one who has lost a son. How should we introduce you? Tell us about yourself. Who are you? I am one who lost a son. Walter Storff says, that loss determines my identity. Not all of my identity, but much of it. It belongs within my story. Who are you? I am one who lost a son. Would it be wrong to say that something similar has happened with our God? He is now one who has lost a son. It belongs within his story. And it's not because an enraged mob um, took Jesus and killed him and, and, and uh, overcame him. You know, there was no um, 
crushing phone call one day like Walter Storff received informing God that something terrible had happened. I, you know, I have bad news to tell you about your son. He was not caught off guard by this. He delivered up his son. It's a gift. We can, I think we can deduce that from the parallel phrase, right? If he gave up his son, then it says, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So all things are given to us graciously as a gift because the son was given to us as a gift. And so what we're learning is that the father voluntarily chose this path, just as we know the son also did. John 10, nobody takes my life from me. I, I willingly lay it down. And yet the father delivered up his son for sin. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. That means even for you, even for me. God is for you. If you believe, God is so for you that he was willing to take into his story this amazing statement, I am one who has lost a son. I feel like I need to close, though, with a warning from the inverse of our text. If there are any here today who haven't made the connection themselves already, our text has an amazing promise, but if you flip it around, it comes with a terrifying warning. If God is against you, who could possibly be for you? If God is not for you, everything will be against you. And so, dear friend, today, not tomorrow, not next week, today, right now, take the free gift that he's offering. Take the son who is offered up for sin. Take him and say by faith, this I know. God is for me. Our Father, we do not have the words to express our gratitude that you would give us your only Son and not withhold him from us. Would you give us a faith in that promise that can then deduce out from that promise that if you've given us your Son, you'll give us everything we need every day? Remove our fears and anxieties. Enlarge our trust and our hope in you because of the wonder of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.